the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. I'm going to be giving a talk at the end of this week to the Episcopal Church in the Diocese of Dallas, and the subject of the talk is Modernity and Mission. Not quite sure why I am considered to be an expert on this. You know, the definition of an expert is somebody who's from 50 miles away, so maybe that's my credential. But they, I've been given this assignment, and it's been a blessing to me because I've spent the summer thinking deeply about this and reading about this. What, what makes the modern age modern? What are its distinctives? And what are the unique and particular challenges the, for mission that the church has in this modern age? So I want to talk to you a little bit about some of my thoughts about that and how that connects with the parable that we have today, the parable that Jesus tells us about two men, one of whom is sunk in self-righteousness, and the other one is aware of his need for mercy. So. First of all, mission. What is, what is mission? Mission comes from this word missio, you know, and it means sent. It's the sentness of the church. And the mission of the Father is the Son who comes in the power of the Spirit. And if we want to find out what the mission of the church is, there are places in the Bible we can look. One of the classical places to look is the 28th chapter of Matthew's Gospel, where just before the ascension, Jesus gathers the disciples to himself, and he says, go into all the world, preach the gospel to all nations. That's how it's usually translated. The Greek there is panta ethne, means literally to every different people type. Make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is, through the cleansing bath of baptism, bring them in to fellowship with the Father through me in the power of the Spirit. Make them part of the body of Christ in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So the mission of the church is to proclaim Jesus Christ in such a way that people come to him. Receive him live in him so that he might live in them and become part of the one family of God, which is the Church of Christ. Matthew 28 is one place to look. The, the place that is, moves me is the 20th chapter of John. It's after the crucifixion. The disciples are hiding because they're afraid. And suddenly, Jesus appears in their midst, and they're frightened, and he reassures them. He says, do not be afraid, it is I. And he shows them the marks of the cross. He shows them his hands and his side, these tokens of his sacrificial love. And then he says, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, but my peace I give to you. As the Father has sent me, even so send I you. 
Our mission is to represent the Lord in such a way in the preaching and teaching of the church, in the celebration of the sacraments, in the deeds done in his name, that people may recognize this decisive act of sacrificial love that God has accomplished in Jesus Christ the Lord. And receive him and receive the new and risen life that he breathes into us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so become part of him that he might live in us and we might live in him. That's the mission. There are many things that go by the name of mission, many good things, good and proper in their own way. But if the things that we call mission do not have this character about them, that they point to his hands and his side and witness to the one that was crucified and is raised and invite people to receive his spirit. It's not mission. Now, what about modernity? That's the task of bringing this this word, the word of new life in Jesus Christ, a new life with God and with each other that begins now in which the grave cannot hold, to bring this word of life to a particular people type, the modern person type. So what is this type? What is the modern world? What is characteristic of modernity? Well, there's shelves of books about this, I assure you. Um, I've read some of them. <laughs> but. One of the commentators has brought my attention to two things that I think are very, very uh, significant. First of all, let's say what's good about the modern age, and there's a lot that's good about it, you know? We, 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 we don't want to go back to the doctors who thought you could cure things by, by bloodletting. Modern medicine. The modern world has seen amazing scientific advances, amazing technological advances. Uh, modern medicine. It has seen more people improve their standard of living than at any previous time in human history. There's still a lot of poverty. There's still a lot of work that needs to be done. But the, 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 uh, the poverty level in Kenya today is about what it was in Sweden in 1930. Vast swaths of the world have been raised from misery. Surely there's a long way to go, but the accomplishments of the modern age are truly impressive accomplishments, and nobody wants to turn back the clock in that way. But what are the other things that characterize the modern age? Well, the 20th century is without any controversy the bloodiest century in the history of humanity. It has seen the rising up of great totalitarian movements that have plunged the world into world wars. Hundreds of millions of people, hundreds of millions lost their lives. So what, spiritually speaking, is characteristic of the modern age? Two things. This one thinker that I've been reading says two things, and um, I think he's right, and they're, they're striking. 
The first one is radical atheism, particularly in the West, radical atheism. And, the, and here's something that will sound more esoteric, the denial of the doctrine of original sin. So radical atheism, what is radical atheism? Atheist, the atheist is someone who investigates the problem of God and says, I've investigated the problem of God and I've concluded that there is no God. That's atheism. Radical atheism is you must not ask that question. You must not talk about that issue. You must forget all about it. It must not come up. At the beginning of the, about the middle of the 19th century, the young Karl Marx, before he writes his famous Communist Manifesto, writes um, some essays called Philosophical Fragments, Philosophical Essays. And in there, he's reflecting about freedom. What does it mean to be free? He says, if you're dependent, you're not free. So you, in order to be free, you must be independent. Now, if there's a God, then clearly, that's a universal dependency. And so Marx says, God must not exist. God must not exist. If uh, humanity has come of age, if we're really grown up, if we're really freed of the illusions and superstitions of the past, God must not exist. And for us to really, for us to be really mature and independent, this is a kind of an unspoken premise of the modern age. And so there is this, this tremendously powerful social convention in the West that the topic of God must not be brought up in polite conversation and certainly not in the public, in the public political, and civil realm. We all feel it very deeply. I mean, I feel it myself. You feel when you start to talk about God with somebody that you've, you've, you're violating some taboo. It's possible for people to be intimate friends with each other for decades and not know what each other's religious beliefs are. Increasing, so one of the characteristics of modernity is this radical atheism, the question of truth. You, could, you may talk about my truth, you may talk about your truth, but we won't talk about the truth because if there were the truth, then we would not have unconstrained choices. And we must have unconstrained choices or we are not free. And certainly you must not talk about God. The question must not be brought up. So it's a kind of a radical atheism. God is, it's not that God is denied, God is forgotten. God is not part of the conversation. The question about God is suppressed by social convention and increasingly suppressed by law. You must not pray in school. You must not pray before the legislature opens. So that's one thing, this kind of radical atheism. But then there's another thing which is, sounds more esoteric, which is that the, doc, the, 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 the disbelief in the doctrine of original sin. Now, this is a foundational doctrine of Christian belief. And it is something that has been um, argued about in the churches in the time that I've been ordained. When I was first ordained, the new prayer book, new prayer book, 1979 is the new prayer book, right? It was coming in. 
And there was an argument about how the, old, the confession in the old prayer book needed to be done away with. Because in the, in the old prayer book, one of the lines of the confession was, we are, we are miserable sinners and there is no health in us. And it was said with great conviction that modern people did not want to say that they were miserable sinners and there is no health in us. Yes, precisely. One of the things that characterizes the modern age is a belief in the perfectibility of human nature. That we can fix ourselves. The doctrine of original sin says we're sick and we can't get well on our own. That we're crooked and we can't straighten ourselves out. That we thirst for justice, but we can't perfectly create the justice that we thirst for that we want to be good and that we cannot be as good as we want to be, and that we need help, we need a savior. The modern world says there's no problem that we can't fix, including the problem of the human heart. Both the Nazis and uh, the Marxists were waiting for the new man, the ubermensch, or the revolutionary man. They were waiting for the new humanity to emerge. In one case, the new humanity was going to arrive, the perfect human being, and the perfect society was going to arrive by a process of racial purification. And on the other hand, it was going to arrive by getting the structures of production and consumption and economics and the organization of the state arranged in the proper dimension. This. Um, this belief in, 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 in perfectibility is in stark contrast to the traditional Christian belief, which is that we're made good, we're fallen, we need redemption. By God's grace and the infusion of the Holy Spirit, we can make progress towards sanctification in this life, but we will always be sinners, and on our deathbed, we will need for the priest to come so we can make a confession and commend and put ourselves into the hands of Almighty God, confident in His mercy. We have thought that we could make heaven on earth, and we've made hell on earth. And so we come to this story Jesus tells about a man who is self-confident and a man who is humble. And if we were to put the spirit of our age into this parable, it would be kind of a strange twist because the Pharisee would not be praying to God. He'd be kind of making a statement to the ages, I guess. Thank God I'm not like these superstitious and backward people. Thank God I can stand on my own two feet and I'm captain of my soul the master of my fate, and need no help and no assistance. Thank God that I don't need God. And the other one says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, they go away. Which one goes? to the future that you would like to have. The one who is self in, sunk in self-deceiving self-righteousness or the one who is humble enough that when the Savior comes, 
and shows the marks of the sacrificial love. He's able to receive the mercy and the peace of God and the new life which he brings. Lord, we give you thanks that you have taught us to repent. We give you thanks that you've taught us to confess. We give you thanks that by your grace we are able to humble ourselves and admit our need for you. And we give you thanks for the gift of new life which you bring to us at the hands of the crucified and risen one who will raise us up to everlasting life. Amen.